I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on CRT and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. I became a devotee of RuPaul's Drag Race way back in 2008 when the show first premiered on Logo TV. It was one of my things. Don't call me when it's on. Don't waste my time talking about anything else if you ain't watching that. Acquaintances who were also fans became friends, at least for the season, all the way up to the grand finale. Now, I gotta be real here. I wasn't always happy with some of what went down on the show. Yeah, the space was queer, but that didn't guarantee that it was free of racism, sexism, and any of its intersections. So there were moments you heard when I was just dying for that voice to put some of that mess right. Purse first, purse first. Welcome to the room, purse fires. When Bob the Drag Queen entered the workroom in season eight, I fell in love immediately. As the season went on, I grew more and more enamored with her razor-sharp wit, commanding stage presence, and unapologetic embodiment of blackness. Well, then why did I waste my time putting on this? Oh, there's more. Why do I waste my time doing that, bitch? <laughs> Bob is also a favorite of my producer, Julia Sharp Levine. We've had rich conversations over the years about the show, talking about its race and gender politics, always wondering what would Bob have said about this or that. So you can understand my excitement when the universe align and I got to kiki with Bob about all things drag and black history. So y'all buckle up. Here we go. Intersectionality Matters with Bob the Drag Queen. My guest today is Bob the Drag Queen, the drag alter ego of performer Caldwell Tidiku, who rose to fame in 2016 after winning season eight of RuPaul's Drag Race. In the six years since she snatched the crown, Bob has taken the world by storm, starring in and producing the hit HBO show, We're Here, co-hosting the podcast, sibling rivalry with her drag sister, Monet Exchange, and acting in a number of movies, TV shows, and plays, including Netflix's Tales of the City and Berkeley Rep's Revival of Angels in America. Bob has also released two comedy specials and is currently developing a new musical about Harriet Tubman. In 2020, Bob and fellow drag queen Peppermint co-founded a nonprofit organization called Black Queer Town Hall which is committed to celebrating Black queer excellence by supporting and cultivating community, sharing knowledge, and uplifting voices. I'm so looking forward to discussing her career, the Black women that inspire her, and how art and drag in particular can be a powerful tool for intersectional activism. Bob, welcome to Intersectionality Matters. What the, That made me sound so much better than I am in real life. Oh, come on. <laughs> that, 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 that I was like, wow, I've done a lot of stuff. <laughs> I and I, I really, you know, I have been wanting to ask you for years whether my reaction to your win 
has been amplified. I know it was. I just want you to tell us stories about how other Black women responded to your victory because, you know, we we were ready to be on swole if you did not get, you know, coordinated. We were like ready for it. Like, you know, he bet. And so what has been and what was the reaction to Black women to your win? So, you know, I actually really found out about all the Black women who support me once I started my podcast, Sibling Rivalry. So here's the thing. When you are in the thick of um, drag race and a lot of the supporters of drag are like uh, cis white women, that's like a big part of the... So when you go out, you see so many of them, which, by the way, I'm super grateful for. And, and you know, I, I love, love, love the support. But then I would go out to the shows and then, um, you know, once I was in black cities, I'd see a lot more black people or we would do this thing where certain tours, we'd have meet and greets and they would put all the all the girls up, like six of us, eight of us up. And then everyone would just go to the person they want to meet. And then I started realizing, oh, my God, there's lots of black ladies here supporting me. Like, I didn't realize that that, that this was that they were here for me specifically. You know what I mean? But also the support that I've been receiving from black women since before I was ever a drag queen. I mean, from my mother, from my grandmother, from my aunts, from my teachers, from my friends in high school and college. Um, my best friend, Alicia, when I was in high school, you know, the first person I ever came out to. So it, it doesn't it doesn't feel new to me, but it does feel completely welcome and comfortable. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I'm I'm I want to come back around to some of the reasons I think I was drawn to you you know, in, in the workroom and on the stage, the, the way that your drag was interpreted, critiqued and framed. I think a lot of black women experience precisely that. Like, you know, what is your performance of gender? Is it uh, legible? And is it legible in ways that are elevating and embracing or is it framed in distanced kind of way? So for you to win was, I think, affirming for so many of us, right? That That's us, That that is our reality of our claims always being kind of marginalized, almost always an afterthought. And one of the things that we bring to the table is a fierce um, sense of, well, no, you ain't gonna do that to me. Right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're <laughs> not gonna interrupt how I am living my life. Well, I, I definitely had a couple of moments on TV where I would uh, receive certain critiques on RuPaul's Drag Race or criticisms from other queens, things that I had like never heard in my life, but all of a sudden I'm in this space. There, we, when you're on Drag Race or any competition reality show, you really are in a pressure cooker. So that was the first time that I had like a white person just straight up be like calling me ratchet mm. and asking me about like why I'm so ratchet, which it was so... It was like really wild. And it's also, I don't even know if a lot of people know the history of the word ratchet. You know, a lot of times ratchet is referring to people who act hood or act particularly black in a way that is um, maybe not uh, deemed as socially um, appropriate. Um, but a lot, what made it so interesting was, um, you know, the term ratchet uh, comes from um, Shreveport. I don't know that Shreveport, Louisiana, it was called Ratchet City. So, you know, someone says like, um, someone so is very New York. So-and-so is very L.A. Um, because it was called Ratchet City, people say so-and-so is very ratchet. They're very Shreveport. Wow. You know I, mean? I did not know that either. I did not know yeah. that I, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when the Williams sisters first came on the scene. Mm-hmm. And effectively, sort of the same things were being said about them. 
they're ghetto players. Um, the beads are inappropriate for tennis. They, they, they just don't fit the look that we're looking for. And I always wondered how they were able to just keep their head in the game, despite all of the, I mean, the faces, the comments, I just know myself when when I get a certain kind of criticism that I know is really jacked up, it's often hard for me not to just step to that and and like, oh no, you ain't. Yeah. You know, I think that for some people, because the drag world is on one hand understood to be and framed as a space of liberation a space of exploration, a, a space that creates alternatives to the jacked up realities that we live in, mm-hmm. that it's shocking when racism shows up. It's surprising to people that, no, you can actually have some real messed up stuff that happens yeah. even in this world. And so I'm really curious about how those of you who have succeeded in the world think about the differentials between for example i think like the top 10 queens in the social media sphere don't have a black queen in it even though you're like among the most successful winners of drag race and you know we just go down the list of all of the other you know black queens who are fierce there there was a time where i was actually the most i was the first black drag queen besides RuPaul um, to get a million followers on Instagram. Mm. Since then, my baby sister, Naomi Smalls, has uh, catapulted past me (laughs) in social media (laughs) following. And I'm very happy for her. I know she deserves it. I'm very proud of her. Um, But I also think that drag is, I said this at at DragCon a couple years ago, you know, maybe sometime for like white people or they're like, oh my God, who would have thought that there'd be racism here? And I'm like, well, black people would have thought because obviously the drag world and not just the drag world, but the academic world, the fashion world, all these places are just microcosms of the real world. So everything you find in the real world, you will find it in these subcultures as well. Maybe the the ratios will vary, but even like there are people who are probably finding out people who work in the clowning world, people who are working the, um, the the world of a teachers you know recreational uh knitters um so there's a there's a macrame club somewhere where someone's you know experiencing microaggressions because everything you experience in the real world you're going to experience it on some level in these small subcultures too well you know on that on that note i am a big fan of we're here and uh was really moved by the conversation that you had with the elders uh, in in Selma. In Selma, yeah. I received 35 stitches on that bridge that day. This sheriff's deputy hit me. I was able to get up and run into a cloud of tear gas. I actually fell. This state trooper kicked me, and he kicked me so hard, I came up off the ground. And I guess that's when I passed out. I saw all that hatred that killed all those people, and that's gonna continue to kill people. So I used to live in Alabama. My father's from Alabama, and I used to live in uh, Phoenix City, Alabama, and Opelika, Alabama. I'm, and I'm also from Georgia and Mississippi. So I lived most of my life between Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi, mostly in Georgia. 
I was one of those folks who really felt the need to get out of the South. I remember feeling like I got to get out of here. Like I, I got to go somewhere where I won't feel othered for being queer. I think a big part of me leaving the South was living in the idea that because I was queer, a lot of Black people wouldn't like me unless they were queer too, or unless they were extremely, extremely liberal. I remember thinking myself like Black folks from the North would like me, but like I know how old Black folks from Alabama are. And then I met some old Black folks from Alabama and they loved me and they embraced me and they told me I was valid and they told me that I mattered and they told me that they see me for who I am. It really got to me. I think I needed to hear that. I hadn't heard it. I'm in 35 and I hadn't heard it yet outside of my mom. You know, my mom has to love me. She's my mom. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just really got to me. And, and, I, and I have had, you know, over the years, struggled with a feeling of like survivor's guilt for thinking of everything that people who look like me or who share my bloodline or who gave birth to people who gave birth to people who gave birth to me had to endure so that I could be here today so that I could be a world-famous drag queen, you know? I think that in the Black community, we have not, as a community, been taught how to deal with our trauma. Exactly. And and then we end up with what feels like survivor's remorse because you didn't get hit on the bridge. Knowing what my ancestors processed so that I could sit here. Breathe, babe. That's why I always try to remember, like, Black Americans in this country, we have a very young culture. Yeah. You know, and and especially when you consider that we weren't even able to start writing it down um, until about 160 years ago. And let's be clear, we are now moving to a period where there's an effort to keep us from writing it down even now. Yes, exactly. And hoping that the children won't won't be taught these things it is terrifying and just just for total clarity for everyone listening the last living american slave died in the 70s think about that think about that that is 160 years ago that is queen elizabeth and a half it's not that long ago (laughs) that's so right you know what i mean yeah it was it wasn't that long ago so of course we're still having some of these effects someone just on on tiktok just posted by the way anyone wondering tiktok changes over the course of the day. In the morning, it's bright and fluffy. Around like 10 o'clock at night, it gets very depressing. And then at three in the morning, it gets creepy. I was at around 10 o'clock on depressing TikTok and um, uh, someone showed some like colorized images of American slaves. And it was so crazy because like, they look so much like me and people I know. And, you know, I there's a big debate about whether colorization is a good thing or a bad thing. Do, does it disrupt the way we receive, you know, the past and all that? And I think it enhances the way we receive I agree. Past, you know, because I think we like to, you know, distance ourselves from the ugliness and the threat by you know, imagining the past in black and white. It's sort of a signal that, you know, this is so far in the past that, you know, the people themselves are even different. And when you look at those pictures and you see you see yourself, yeah, you realize those people had the same aspirations, the same hopes for freedom, um, the same critiques and the same anger um, that, that we would have had if we were there. And that that seems to make it, you know, far more real to people. Yeah, I think that it really kind of became real to me. Um, uh, When I was on We're Here in Gettysburg, actually, season one, episode one, I went to this um, place that does old 
pictures, but like they they do them the way they actually did them back during the Civil War. These like really really old pictures, and I got one done of myself, and I was looking at this picture of myself, and I was like, oh my god, I look like someone from the past and then that's when it clicked to me that people from the past also looked like me and and that that is the kind of recognition that much of the pushback against 1619 project critical race theory is trying to disconnect you know move us away from that recognition that you just had and you know when i think about why i'm connected to that past it's my mom you know, my mom mm -hmm. was the one that would, would take me on a little tour of our town. That's where the uh, soda fountain counter was that wouldn't serve me. This is the place where if they did serve you, they'd take your glasses and put it in a separate place so that it wouldn't get mixed up with this, the, the utensils that uh, white people use. So she allowed me to read the landscape for the fingerprints of the past so that um, it was legible to me. And I'm, I'm wondering about your relationship with your mom and how, how has her shaping you manifested in the you that you are today? Well, I do want to ask you, where, where's your family from? Where's your family from? Her family is from South Carolina mm -hmm. uh, and Alabama on my father's side. Got and it. They all um, uh, came up during the, the 20s. I realize that everyone has that in common with Beyonce, me and you, my daddy, Alabama. <laughs> like my dad's also from, from Alabama. So my mother is, is a boomer from Mississippi. So I also had a lot of those instances where... You know, my mom would tell me that when her and her family would take road trips, they had to bring their own porta potty, basically. Like you would you would buy like a pot in a chair to use because you couldn't stop at any of the gas stations to use the bathroom. I remember talking to my aunt, my mother's aunt, who's um, I believe now the matriarch of my family, and she was talking to her grandfather. Um, this one, this one I was talking to just a couple of, she's like 74, I think. And she was talking to her, um, to her grandfather. And, um, one day she started, she just started crying because, um, she came from school and asked him to read her a book and he said he couldn't read. And then she asked why he couldn't read and he just didn't want to answer. And then someone else responded to her and said, well, he was a slave. Wow. This was in the fifties that she was told this. And someone said, well, he was, he was a slave. He, he was very old, obviously. That made a, a pretty big impact on their life. And then of course that is shared with, with my mom. And then my mom, we moved to, my mom moved to Georgia from Mississippi in the eighties, um, which is where I showed up in 1986 in Columbus, Georgia. And my mom has eight siblings and she, she was, I think one of the first to move away. So we were living in the big city of Columbus, Georgia, which is by the way, not a big city, but in my mom's mind, cause she moved from Corinth, Mississippi. She was like, I'm in the city now. <laughs> so we were over, she was over there living, living her life. And, and I, I would still go back home every, to, to Mississippi every summer to see my family. And then I eventually moved there for a little while um, as well. But I, I, I do have one of those very like stereotypical strong black, when you think, when you think of the, the strong black woman archetype, that is my mom. She raised me and my brother by herself. We we moved around a lot. My mom worked a lot of jobs. My mom uh, was going through college while me and my brother were in elementary school. Actually, my brother got his GED. I got my high school diploma and my mother got her bachelor's degree 
all in the same summer. Oh my god! Which is a very a very celebratory uh, moment. Shout out the year two thousand four. It was a big year for the call. No, y'all had a big old party. <laughs> I, I know people probably ask you this a lot, but I I would never tire of hearing it about how you crafted the larger than life persona of Bob the drag queen. Yeah. So I come from the New York City drag scene, um, which is not super like character driven. So there's a lot of places where you do drag. And it's like, there are, let me refer, there are lots of queens who do drag and they have like a completely separate persona from their real life. Like there's a drag queen named Barla Jean Merman. Barla Jean Merman is not the same in and out of drag. She's like completely different. It's almost like this Tyler Perry style of drag where there's a character you're putting on. And whereas I was in the New York City nightlife scene where we were just being as gay as possible, <laughs> being as queer as you can be. So I never really had like a, I wouldn't call my drag a persona. I always say that um, my my drag, my outfits, is my, it's my work clothes. And the persona is just, just, it's just me in work mode. It's even how teachers sound different when they teach versus when they're at home. You know what I mean? Like it's just I'm in I'm in work mode, so it it, it is still me. There there's no there's no um, artifice or uh, backstory or, or or lore behind Bob the drag queen that doesn't exist with with Caldwell. Mm-hmm. It, it reminds me of when I was growing up, um, I could tell whether my mom was talking to a black person or a white person on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the phone voice, you know, there's the, you know, when you're calling to talk about a bill or something like that versus, Mm -hmm. you know, when she's talking to somebody from church or don't, you know, kind of stuff. And so Mm -hmm. I think for, for black folk in particular, code switching is more of a continuum of who we are. It's not just like I'm here, I'm this person, this moment, and this person, another moment, but absolutely, you know, modulate from one point to another point. Absolutely. If if I'm with the girls, with some other queens and some queers, I'm going to be talking a lot differently than if I'm like, like for example, child, back, I don't have hair anymore, but back when I had hair, <laughs> back when I was lucky enough to grow hair right out of the top of my head, the Caldwell in the barbershop was not the same person when I left because the barbershop is just like, I don't know if y'all know this or not, but like the barbershop is a really scary place for a black <laughs> queer man. It is terrible. Like if you're a black queer man, going into the barbershop to get your hair cut is like, the amount of mental preparation and gymnastics you have to do Mm. just to walk into this like really butch macho place just to get your hair cut is wild. Maybe, maybe, maybe I went bald out of uh, survival mode. Maybe I wasn't (laughs) even supposed to be bald. Maybe this is my body being like, girl, you got to stop going to this place. They say the body remembers, right? The body remembers. (laughs) And you know, there, there is that. And then there's the reality of, how black cisgender men have embodied performance of black womenhood. So I'm curious about both how how you navigate between the occasional misogyny and stereotype that we've seen come out of representations of black womenhood. Like, you know, you mentioned Tyler Perry, you, you know, there's Martin mm-hmm. Lawrence, there's Eddie Murphy. There was a there was a moment that it seemed that the pathway to being seen as a comedian, as a black man is to perform as a black woman in a context in which the parodying of black womanhood has functioned in, in ways that have been troubling 
how do you think about trying to recover a performance that steers away from what we've seen happen over, you know, the course of decades? It's really interesting. You know, I, I was I was talking to someone about this recently, and I feel like there's something about the like, for example, when a black queer person is performing in drag. I mean, I'm not a woman. And whenever I'm performing, I'm not doing a character like Medea, where I'm like, I am a black grandma and I got a Glock and I be talking crazy and I'm violent, honey. <laughs> I'm I'm still performing from the space of a black queer person, like a black non-binary, you know, assigned male at birth person is not like. I'm Auntie Shabang Bang, and I'm gonna shoot y'all up. Um, and I think maybe it's be, maybe it is because I do have a certain reverence and respect for um, Black women for what Black women have, do, have done for me, and I and I hope that that is I hope I certainly hope that people who see my performances and listen to my podcasts and and you know hear my music aren't hearing some sort of a parody of uh, Black womanhood in my performance. And if they you know and, and of course I can't be in charge of what people feel about my my own work i just have to make the work and then hope people receive it the way that i that i intended it you know what i mean and i feel like we as a as a people i think that it's going to take some first of all some acknowledgement from people who have done things to what's what i'm looking for they, they've definitely taken the performance of, of black womanhood and really um like basically put all the the bad stuff or the stereotype stuff out in the front street and then kind of walked away and refused to clean it up yeah. But then yeah. the people who have to clean it up are the ones that it's attached to, which is black women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whoopi Goldberg used to do this this bit where she would tell a racist joke on stage and then she would ask the audience why they were laughing. A little white angel came over to God and said, well, you know, why am I here? And said, oh, because, you know, your mother loved you and you, we needed you up here to take care of, the, you know, the clouds. And then another little white angel came by and said, God, why am I here? And then God was like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then a black baby came over and then God then said, why am I here? And then God looked at the black angel and said, nigga, you a bat. Um, and then, you know, the audience would respond and then Whippy would just ask, I'm not saying you can't laugh. I'm just wondering, why are you laughing? Mm -hmm. What are you laughing at? From what place are you laughing? I have a sneaking suspicion that the black people are laughing from a different place and the white people are laughing. You know what I mean? Everyone's laughing for a different reason. And I think that, that that's a really powerful notion to put forth to your audience well you know it does remind me of someone else uh another comedian who stopped in his tracks when he was looking to at white people laughing at certain things yep, Dave Chappelle. and now he's back mm -hmm. wondering you know where your thoughts go on you know how he's been using his humor to to try to make a point but also doing so in a way that contributes to the transphobia that you know we know is real the thing about dave chappelle's initial point was that he wasn't wrong in what he initially said initially he was saying that the queer movement is going forward and that there is some mistreatment of the trans people mm -hmm. um but then it boils down to like if someone's telling you like for example if a white comedian was on stage and they were saying things like um while America is really progressing, but forgetting about the black people, but then started using a bunch of disparaging language, derogatory words, inflammatory um, metaphors to talk about it. And then and then that person would be like, why is everyone so mad? All I said was that black people's struggle is different than white people's. Like, no, that's not that's not all you said. Like, don't don't act like that's all you said. Like clearly there was some other stuff sprinkled in for comedic effect that didn't quite land the way that you wanted. And it really is shocking to me when people say things they know will be inflammatory 
and they are completely blown away that people were in flames. Mm -hmm. They're like, I am so shocked that you all are like when you wrote the joke, when you said that, when you wrote the joke, when you did it all in the previews before you did your special, you, when you tested it out on t tons of audiences, when you ran it by your friends, you know, a thousand times people were like, oh, that one is that one's going to be wild. And then you get there, you say it and then it's received in a myriad of ways. I don't know why people are always so shocked. Like we bitch, you've been there. You knew this was going to happen, you know? Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, seemed to also, you know, be the point, right? I'm going to throw the bomb and see, you know, I'm going to say, see what happened. Here's yeah. the thing that also was interesting to me, Bob. Um, so buried in all the inflammatory things that happened was a joke about the beat down of a black woman. Yeah, that, that thank you for bringing that up. Because I, I remember talking about, me and my friend Peppermint had had a conversation about this. And I, and it's, I guess so much has happened. The world is happening so fast. There's there's yeah. so much news every day between murderous bees and, and Omicron and, and every, there's always a new headline. There was a full on conversation about just fully beating up a black woman. And people were just cheering. Exactly. And the audience is just laughing. And it seems to be getting so little care. That's the intersectional challenge that, that I have with the entire thing. I think that there were many dimensions of this that were troubling. And I would have wanted to see outrage about all of it. Yep. So a lot of times I often wonder how misogyny has become unwritten in the outrage, you know, all of it's playing a role. And often the failure to be able to mark that means that some things get slipped through while we're expressing our critique about all of the other isms that this performance was a reflection of. Well, I think I have a question. Like, I'm wondering if sometimes Black women feel because I've noticed there's been like this movement on on TikTok with a lot of black women calling out black men. Mm. Um, but then there's a lot of other black women being like, do not call these black men out. Like we need, we need, like they feel wrong for criticizing black men in any capacity for everything that black men have been through, despite, you know, a lot of the stuff that black women are going through is also often at the hands of these black men. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So I think sometimes these, there's something really dangerous, I think, in the black community that like tells us and it tells black women, especially black women, to protect the black man at all costs. All costs. That's right. Like he is the head of the household. He is the this, he is the that, despite you know, most black households actually being headed up by women. We are told that we have to protect the black man at all costs. And I think that has come at, an, at a negative effect, in my opinion. Absolutely. You know, I call it the SOB defense, save our brother. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and so it's Cosby and Clarence Thomas, R. Kelly. And, and it, you know, obviously it sends a message to future generations of Black women that defending ourselves, speaking about the, the need for, you know, affirmation and protection against all sorts of violence and abuse comes at a cost. It's true. And it hurts a lot when it's people that you love and look up to and respect. Like, I remember when um, Snoop Dogg. Oh, yeah. Was to, to Gail King. Gail had asked some questions yep. to an athlete. And the way that Snoop Dogg mm -hmm. so abruptly and quickly and confidently went on the internet and trashed this black woman. I get sick of y'all, funky dog head bitch. 
Respect the family and bag off, bitch, before we come get you. And this was Gail King. Right? <laughs> right? So imagine if Gail was subject to that. Mm-hmm. Imagine what other black women who 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 aren't on television and don't have Oprah's, you know, support. So I was I was shocked, really troubled by it. Even um, you know, watching the movie um Straight Out of Compton. Yes. And seeing Dr. Dre being touted as this like the best and then and then Michelle had to come out later and be like I was fully like they really let's just say they left out a lot of the movie yeah. let's just say this story was incredibly selective and this is all alleged I, I don't know obviously I was not there but Michelle is that is like there was a lot of abuse between Dr. Dre and herself and all of that was you know conveniently left out of the story so obviously you know it was produced by ice cube and dr dre so they're gonna they're gonna tell their their rendition yep yep absolutely well we actually had d barnes on an earlier episode of intersectionality matters and you know she was you know beaten and 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 still has lasting damage from what dre did to her but the community by and large rejected her and supported him and that that level of of misogyny and violence and the way it travels in popular culture has long, long, long been of concern to a lot of us who say we're intersectional feminists. You know, you can't be pro-black on one hand till it happens that there's violence between black men and black women and suddenly the women don't count. Do you know about um, Ellen Craft? The escape slave. Yes. Is so this is not you know story. It is really someone has to write this play. Maybe maybe one day I'll get there in my life. But like Ellen Craft dressed up as a white man. She was a, a light skinned black woman, mm-hmm. and she dressed up as a white man, pretended that her husband was her slave. Right. Her husband, um, he was he was a slave, and he had worked. So here's the thing: every once in a while, certain slave owners would let their slaves work jobs and keep some of the money. So he was able to keep some money and they bought tickets to the North, got on a train, got on a boat, had lunch with the, with the steamboat captain, all this stuff. And just, it is one of the wildest stories of how like drag has saved someone's life. You know what I mean? (laughs) That's the title, Drag Saved My Life. You know, (laughs) or uh, my escape from 12 years a slave in drag. Yeah, through drag. If you ever want to do that, let's collaborate. (laughs) You know, here's one of my, um, I I want to ask you about Harriet Tubman because you and I both are interested in her. I've written a little play too, so I want to compare some oh nice a little play but tell talk to me about your harriet tubman project okay so my obsession with harriet tubman came at a really young age i remember hearing the story and just being like this doesn't even sound real it sounds and the more you listen to her story the more you know the wilder it sounds the more you're like this cannot this could she could not have gone back this many times she could not have been five feet tall she could not have been the first woman to ever lead a military mission in the history of the u.s she could not have um freed almost over 500 slaves in one day one she mission. could not have she could not have lived to be almost 100 years old like she could not have known john brown frederick Douglass, susan b anthony like how is all of this even possible? And how do we not know the full story? I mean, that's that's the thing. You know, this this person who had 
so many different improbabilities be made real in her life. And mm -hmm. in the end, she had to petition Congress to get her $25 yep. a month pension. She was doing laundry for white folks at the end of her life. I mean, that kind of, you know, you you can save the union, you can be badass. She, she was the one during the Combahee River raid that not only got the the slaves on the on the war boat, she then said torch the plantations because she understood mm -hmm. that it wasn't just about getting the slaves off, but interrupting the capacity of the South to wage war. So she like burnt the the whole thing down. Yeah, you know Harriet was a a beautiful woman and used her wiles to distract slave catchers in one instance so they could get across the bridge people don't imagine her like that you know mm. when they hear she was the conductor of the underground railroad and she did this and she did that they don't see her as ever having been a beautiful desirable woman who knew how to use you know her sexuality in her liberation strategy yeah and i do remember a big part of the conversation in the 90s specifically being around specifically in the black community how ugly whoopi goldberg was oh that was the conversation yeah mm -hmm. and then i remember it, at the at the time i heard it so frequently that i was like yeah she was ugly I just heard it in my mind without even um, battling that notion. And a lot of people in black culture know it is probably specifically because of the line from Suge Avery, you show is ugly. Mm -hmm. It's the first thing she says when she sees Miss Silly, she looks her in the face and she goes, you show is ugly. So this follow Whoopi Goldberg for a really long time. And then I remember looking back recently at pictures and I thought to myself, she was never ugly. No. Not once was she ever even kind of ugly. Yeah. You know what I mean? But we really allowed pop culture to tell us that she was and that women who look like her were. Yeah. And we internalize that. We internalize that, which is one of the hardest parts, you know, about, you know, there's a struggle that we have against the racial gaze. And then there's a struggle that we have against internalizing that racial gaze and then turning that on each other. And sometimes I think the internal part is harder for me to fight than the external part. I, I, I know what the yeah. external thing looks like. I know how to call out some racism. I know, you know, uh, what it means when people are not invested, you know, in our intellect and our beauty and our, our creativity that you know how to fight. But when it when it comes from inside, that's the hard stuff that that's the yeah. challenge. I'm wondering whether that's what you're trying to do with your black queer town hall. I don't. I don't like to end without hearing about what people are up to now. And I know that's one of your mm -hmm. big, you know, projects. So tell us a little bit about that. So Black Queer Town Hall is run by me and my uh, my dear friend, Ms. Peppermint, who is an absolute icon in, um, in Black history. Um, the first uh, openly trans woman to ever originate a role, a major role in a Broadway show. So congratulations again to you, Peppermint. Love you so, so much. Uh, you know, it all started because me and me and um, Peppermint were like calling each other, having these conversations every day on the phone, especially in, at the top of quarantine. And then in the midst of George Floyd, we were having all these conversations. And then Obama had a town hall, had a digital town hall, I remember. And I remember thinking it was so great, all these white people. And I remember thinking to myself, if these were all queer people, it'd be even more phenomenal. So then I called my friend Pep and I said, Pep, let's do this. I want to do a black queer town hall with you. I want to make it a thing. And then in 
less than a month, we were able to raise a quarter of a million dollars to pay Black queer people and allies to put on this remarkable, amazing event that I'm so, so proud of. And it's still available online. You can check out, we've done two of them and they're both available online if you want to go check them out. There is a real push to uh, label anti-racism as racism, to cut off the, the history and the legacies that our ancestors are passing on to us, to elevate this idea that to talk about inequality or to talk about uh, marginality is to be the one that is subverting our beautiful colorblind universal you know, society. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about um, how the entire project of drag stands to either be potentially erased by this sort of it's America and we don't like any of this other stuff and we're not going to talk about it and how it might be used to fight back against that sort of narrow conception of, of what is America. Let me say this. If you are in a house, let's say me and you, we live in a house together and we have a sibling. Let's call our sibling Craig, okay? <laughs> and then I'm like, y'all, the ceiling is really leaky in this house. We got to fix this ceiling. And then you look up and you go, oh my God, it is leaking. Mm. We actually, we have to fix the leak in the ceiling. And then Craig goes, if you don't like this house, just leave. <laughs> right. And I'm like, okay, we didn't say we don't. In fact, we love this house so much. We want to keep fixing it. We don't want to lose this house. We love this house. In fact, the foundation is also a little creaky too. We need to replace these floors. We need to fix this. Also, this room is a mess. We need to redecorate completely. And Craig's like, if you don't like it the way it is, then you need to just go. Yes. I don't want to fix it. I don't want to change it. I just want to watch it deteriorate, basically. Mm -hmm. Then who loves the house? Yes. Who really loves the house? Yeah, yeah. I love, you know I, mean? I so love that. The true love is the person who sees potential and has faith, even though they've not seen the reality, right? Mm -hmm. Even though we're still talking about making the country live up to the promises it's made, who believes in the country more? The ones who say, no, you said this, we're going to do this. Or the ones who say, forget we ever said it. It was a mistake when we said it and we ain't going to yeah. do it. Who really loves the country more? Well, Bob, it has been such a dream to have this conversation with you. I've looked forward to it for so, so long. And I so appreciate you and everything you do and everything you represent. And thank you for spending time with us today on Intersectionality Matters. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp-Levine. This episode was co-produced by Ashley Julian, with support provided by Kevin Manufo, Destiny Spruill, Rebecca Sheckman, and the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by subscribing and leaving a review, following us on social media, and joining our Patreon page for bonus episodes and exclusive content. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters.